This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. This is NCD Chronicles, a series where we go beyond the disease diagnosis to look at the lived experiences and real challenges faced by people who have non-communicable diseases. In February every year, we observe World Cancer Day. In the year that passed since the last World Cancer Day, 10 million people would have died from cancer. By 2030, experts project cancer deaths to rise to 13 million each year, if we don't act. More than one-third of cancer cases can be prevented. Another third can be cured if detected early and treated properly. But there is a care gap in cancer. People who seek cancer care hit barriers at every turn. Sometimes this is because of their income level, education or where they live. But many barriers are invisible and imperceptible. They defy stereotypes. An educated person living in urban, middle-income Klang Valley can also face barriers to care. My name is Hiba. Uh, some of my friends call me Baba, so you can actually call me either one, it's fine. I am 32 years old. I am a baker and I currently run a baking business from home. I used to work in a bakery, but because um, I have like limited you know, physical capacity to be able to be doing physical work, so I've taken a step back from actually doing the full-on F&B industry. So I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 25. So this was about seven years ago. I was actually misdiagnosed before that for about four years. So every time I went to get it checked, it was always missed out. Um, One of the things that the doctors actually told me was because I'm young. So it wasn't in their radar. And so when I got diagnosed in 2015... It came as a shock because I don't have a family history of cancer. And from then on, I went to do chemotherapy. I did surgery. I did radiation therapy. I did hormone therapy. I did targeted therapy. I have had six surgeries, four of which are major surgeries, two of which are minor. And they were either because of the cancer or because of treatments. So some side effects from treatments caused me to actually go for surgeries as well. And it's been seven years. I'm very grateful that my treatments have all worked out very, very well, despite whatever bumps on the road that, you know, um, arised. And, yeah, I'm, I'm now just going for my follow-ups. I'm considered cancer-free, so I'm very, very grateful for that. And right now I just go for my yearly checkups, my yearly scans to make sure that everything's okay. You could almost say that Hiba did everything right. She knew her body, she was proactive about going for health checkups, and she alerted her doctor to the lump that she found. But even still, her cancer was not diagnosed for four years. When I was 21, I actually found a lump in my breast. It was a hard lump, and it was not painful. So I went to get it checked, and I'm the kind of person that I'm very aware of my body. And if anything's wrong, I need to go to the doctor. So I went to get it checked. So um, they did an ultrasound. 
And through the ultrasound, they just said, oh, it's just a lump, but it's nothing to worry about. And the doctor said, oh, it's nothing, you know, scan, say, oh, it's nothing, just come back next year and we'll do a follow-up. So next year I came back, same thing. The third year I came back, same thing. And what happened in 2015 was that I still had the lump. I went that year because I started bleeding from my nipple. And of course, when you start bleeding, there's something wrong. So I went to get myself checked again. The doctor that came to see me that day, maybe she was tired, I don't know. But it was, I was probably like the last patient that she saw. It was in the evening. And she did an ultrasound, exactly what all the other doctors did. And she said, mm, you know, doesn't seem to be anything wrong, you know, it's, it seems fine. So I said, oh, okay, so that lump means nothing. And she was like, oh, you have a lump? I said, yes, of course, that's why I'm here. I have a lump and I'm bleeding from my nipple. And I told her, I said, that's what the doctor who referred me to you put on the sheet of paper. And she said, oh, okay, so she scanned again. And she was like, hmm, okay, um, yeah. Uh, it seems like, you know, um, it's nothing much to worry about. Your milk ducts are full. It's normal for breastfeeding women. And I just looked at her and I was like, I'm not married and I don't have children. And isn't it weird that it's only on one breast and not the other? So it was on my left breast. She was like, oh, uh, okay. So there is something wrong here. And I said, uh-huh, you think? <laughs> so then she said, okay, I'll send the report up to your doctor, you know, and take it from there. So... Uh, when I went to see my doctor the next week, he said, OK, I've made you, I've scheduled you an appointment with a breast surgeon because I'm not happy with your results. So I went to see her. She did exactly the same thing, ultrasound, and she found everything. She said, OK, you have a tumour here and you have... Um, so when you go for an ultrasound and you see the screen of your breast, there's, if there's like white, white spots and it's all in one uh, area, it's called calcifications. That's not a good sign. That's usually a sign of pre-cancer or cancer. And then she scanned my lymph nodes. She said, your lymph nodes are swollen. So she said, if you're okay, I would like to do a biopsy. And she took a few samples and she said, Hiba, I really hope that this is something that mimics cancer and is not cancer because you're still so young, you're 25. Over the weekend, I called a family meeting and I told them what is going on. And everyone, of course, was worried. So Monday, I went with my mum and my sister and I got the diagnosis. My doctor was like, okay, you have breast cancer. It's confirmed. So um, I'm considered stage two. And I'm very, very grateful that it only reached my lymph nodes. And there was a small lesion in my lung. But whether it was, can it was cancer or not, we didn't know. She said, okay, you need chemo, you need radiation therapy, you need surgery. Definitely, that's all on the table. I also didn't want my mom to worry because, again, I'm the youngest in the family. And at the time, we had actually lost my dad about a month before that. He had actually just passed away. Um, the thing is, my diagnosis was only... So I had, I had a very clear picture of, of, you know, my treatment plan, and it was only supposed to last six months. Chemotherapy, six cycles, mastectomy, radiation therapy, done. And then, you know, go home with, you know, hormone therapy tablets and things like that. No more hospital treatments. After my surgery... I got them to retest my tumour and my results had actually changed. So it does happen because cancer is a living thing, right? So my doctor did explain it to me and I said, okay, fine. So my treatment had to be extended one more year. The treatment that I was called, that I was on was called Herceptin. 
Herceptin is a form of targeted therapy. So I needed to be on 17 cycles of that. And again, because of insurance, thankfully, I could pay for it. But each cycle of Herceptin is 10,000 ringgit. So you can imagine if I didn't have insurance, how on earth I was going to pay for that. And at that point in time, 17 cycles were still the standard. So I said, okay, that's about 170,000 that, you know, I have to fork out of my insurance. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was, I, again, that was only like part of the journey. Midway, I had surgeries done. Midway, I had, you know, switch of medications. And it's just been a whirlwind of a journey for, I think, five years. Yeah. Hiba doesn't look like someone who would be a victim of inequity. It's easy to assume that she is where she is because she had access to good treatment. And she did have access to the treatment she needed, but it wasn't without sacrifices. And her cancer journey shows that there are still many gaps where people can fall through. And for her, the biggest gap was in insurance coverage and financial stability. Okay, first of all, I'm very grateful that I come from not a well-to-do family, but a supportive family. So I had the privilege of actually taking a step back from my job when I was diagnosed. My family just said, you know what, why don't you focus on your health? And I'm also very grateful that my mom had actually signed me up for insurance um, when I was much younger. So we didn't really have to think so much about like finances when it came to me being in the hospital. However, my insurance only covers inpatient and not outpatient. So any procedures done as an outpatient, we would have to fork out on our own. And as much as, you know, we did have financial help from insurance, which I'm very, very grateful for, it still would take a toll on finances. So, And I decided to have, because of insurance, I decided to have treatment in a private setting. So... Every time I would go for scans, it would cost maybe two, three thousand ringgit. You know, it's not just scans, scans, blood tests, you know, whatever you can think of, you know. And there will also be tests for, um, so for breast cancer, there are specific tests to see what the cancer feeds on and what the cancer responds to. So that would also affect treatments. So it would actually show uh, whether the cancer feeds on like estrogen or progesterone and then, um, also test uh, the HER2 gene, which um, basically shows you the protein that surrounds the cancer cells. So if you're HER2 positive or HER2 negative, you know, it's different kind of treatments. And those kind of tests are also done outpatient, so it's not covered by insurance. Yeah, so and the thing is with these kind of tests or scans, it adds up and... To this day, when I go for my follow-ups, when I go for my scans, I still need to fuck up my own, my own money because it's not something that I can do as an inpatient procedure. And for example, if I had a procedure that can be done outpatient but claimed later, for example, if I had to do radiation therapy, radiation therapy is not cheap. So if I had to fuck out like 10, 15,000 ringgit first and then claim later, I would need to find that 10 or 15,000 ringgit, you know. And so... It's been a strain on us financially because of that, because of all the, you know, money that we had to fork out. And I know a lot of people have come to me and said, oh, thank God you have insurance, you know, at least you don't have to pay so much. But again, it's still cost. And whenever I plan out my finances, when I work, a big chunk of it goes to 
a medical fund because I am covered under the old insurance plan. So I have a limit to my insurance, about, I think 450000 if I'm not mistaken. And I've used half, if not more, of that. And then I have to think, okay, if my insurance runs out, that's it. I have nothing, you know. And I have to think not just about cancer. When I get older, you know, what if I have other surgeries? What if I get into an accident? What if I've got heart problems? And you can try as very best as you can to take care of yourself. But sometimes, you know, life happens, things happen. And so I have to think about, okay, when I plan out my finances, I have to think about a medical fund that I have to set aside for myself. And it's very frustrating. Why do you say you have nothing if your current policy runs out? Why can't you just get another policy? Because for insurance companies, once you have a critical illness, you're not allowed to get health insurance. You can get life insurance, but you can't get health insurance. And I have tried asking around. I've tried applying. I've tried seeking advice for the past seven years from different insurance agents. And they come with me, you know, they come to me with the same thing. They're like, you can't get health insurance because you have cancer. And I'm like, okay, but if I'm cancer-free, can I reapply? And they said, you can try, but the chances of you being rejected are very, very high because you already have an underlying condition. And I feel like that's not fair because there are so many cancer patients who go on living for 20, 30 years or even 40 years and they're perfectly healthy. You know, they have families, they have socialized, they have careers that they think about, you know, and they can't get insurance. So let's say if I was, if I didn't have insurance at all, then I would also have to think about that, like a big chunk of my money going to medical care. And as much as it's easy for people to say, oh, okay, there's, you know, government health care, you know, our government health care system is good, which I agree. But the waiting list is really long. And because the government system is so overwhelmed, if you are of a minority case or a minor case, then you'll be put at the bottom of the list. And what a lot of people don't know is that not all cancer treatments are available in government hospitals. Not all targeted therapies, for example, are available in government hospitals. So if you go there and, you, and they say like, oh, you're actually eligible for targeted therapy, but we don't have it here, you need to go to a private setting. And then you have to raise funds for it. And it's, again, back to square one. You would have to think about your finances and you're fighting for your life. The last thing that you want to think about is, you know, can I afford to pay for all of this so that I can extend my lifespan, for example. Yeah. After the break, how cancer has left no part of Heber's life untouched. This is NCD Chronicles, our series that goes behind the diagnosis of non-communicable diseases. Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. To admit to myself that I'm having a tough day was a big no-no for me because I'm like, no, I am, I'm Hiba. People know me as this smiley, bubbly person. Anyone and everyone who's met me and seen me, they're like, oh my God, how do you keep so positive? You know, what's your secret? The thing is, like, I'm not like this all the time. But it's, that also put a lot of pressure on me to constantly put up this front of like, yeah, I need to be happy all the time. But now I, I don't have to do that. Like, I can sit across from you and tell you I'm having a tough day. You know, I might just cry later, you know, and it's, it's fine. 
Hello and welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shawik, on another episode of NCD Chronicles. On this episode, we feature Hiba Abdurrahman, a breast cancer survivor in her 30s, a vivacious, vibrant young woman with passion in her voice and dreams in her eyes. But living with cancer is exhausting. It's not just the disease itself that takes a toll on the body. Going through the treatments and surgeries also wear you out, as well as the emotional turmoil of all the uncertainties that come with living with the disease. When I finished my treatment, so it took about two to three years in a hospital setting, okay? Um, it took me another maybe one more year to go back to work. Again, the things that people don't see are the psychological side of things. So when you go in for cancer treatment, doctors, nurses, medical health care professionals, your family, even yourself, you know, you tend to think about, okay, cancer treatment, 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 how do you cure the cancer? You know, how do you treat the cancer? How do we make sure that the cancer doesn't come back? And whatever side effects that come along, they're like, yeah, okay, let's just treat this, you know. But what we don't think about is the psychological aspects of it, how much stress it causes a person, and the impact that cancer treatments have on a patient. So me being out of work for about two, three years and then having to go back into the industry, I would also have to think, okay, what would, you know, my main worry was, would I be judged because I am a cancer patient? Would, you know, people ask me or like, would the decision to hire me be affected because I have cancer? And I have gone for interviews where they're like, mm, you know, you've had, cancer, we don't think you're fit to work. And it was for like a marketing position in the office. I said, what What does that have to do with anything? And they're like, oh, what if you get a relapse? And I'm like, um, okay. But again, this kind of health issues can happen to anyone at any given time. So it took me about a year to get over that anxiety. I actually went for therapy because of it, you know, to be able to bridge that gap between patient and, you know, a what we call a normal person, being able to assimilate back into society and go back to the workforce. And going for therapy helped me a lot, but that journey to get that help was not easy because I didn't even know where to start. And at that time, because I was young, you know, there are not many cancer patients my age that I knew that were going through this. To actually find that support took me some time. I think I only found it in the second or third year of my diagnosis. Mm -hmm. A lot of the patients that I got to know in that first year were much older, in their 40s, 50s. So they go through a different set of challenges. And when I went back to work, so I my background at that time was events uh, marketing line. Uh, so that's where I went back into events. I was still going through treatments, but it was more uh, tablets that I had to take or injections that I had to take. And midway through working, I had to go for surgery because there, there was an ovarian cyst that popped up. And because of my cancer history with, with breast cancer, my gynae was like, okay, I don't want to take the risk. Just in case it spreads there, we better open you up, make sure that it's not cancerous. Okay, so that happened, I think, 2016, beginning of the year. 2017, I had a recurrence again, ovarian cyst. I had two surgeries in that year because it recurred twice. And that was because of the medication that I was on. And then... Uh, I had to switch my medication because it was not suitable for me. And the medication that I switched to was injections and it was much stronger. So I couldn't function. 
I would literally just be in bed the whole day. I had severe migraines. My mood swings were very, very bad. I had insomnia, but extreme fatigue. So, and then I didn't have much appetite to eat. I couldn't move around much. I had loss of focus. It was so much to handle. And again, I couldn't find anyone my age going through this, on this kind of medication. Because usually patients with breast cancer, they would be on a medication called tamoxifen. It's like the most common medication out there. So that's on the hormone side. So it blocks the estrogen receptors and it's a tablet that you take once a day. But that was not suitable for me because it caused ovarian cysts. Because it's also hormone stimulating, but instead of like increasing hormones, it decreases hormones. So then I was on injections, which was much stronger. And it's usually given to advanced breast or prostate cancer patients. And that was, that reminded me of chemo, chemo days. That's, that's how much I couldn't function. And I had to quit my job because of it. And that was already, I think, the second time I had to quit a job. At that time, I was just trying to figure out, you know, okay, how do I navigate through this? Go to work, and then I have to take a pause from work that I just started, so I have to leave. When I recover, I have to go back and find another job. Then midway through that job, if, you know, treatments change, I can't function, quit again and recover. And it's been a constant cycle. So even recently, I've had to leave my job because so I was in the F&B industry. I, I pivoted to a whole different industry. And it was very frustrating for me recently because... I started getting severe migraines and it was to a point where I would just be in bed or like vomiting and cannot look at screens, nothing. And I still can't figure out what's wrong. But, you know, it caused me to not able to contribute, you know, in my work and I had to quit. This was probably like a month or two months ago. And the thing is, like, as empathetic as any boss can be, when you have recurring health issues like this, after a while, it comes to a point where, you know, you have to come to a mutual agreement where you're like, you know what, this is not working out. Like a relationship, you know, this is not working out. And it's been extremely frustrating because this is my source of income and I'm unable to, to keep at it. Hiba felt particularly alone as a young adult with cancer, as life seemed to go on without her. In my second year of diagnosis, 2016, that's when I started on Herceptin treatments. That was when I told myself, okay, you know, Herceptin is not as bad as chemo because at most I get migraines and fever and chills. But I think what frustrated me the most was that I had already had plans in my head, you know, that my treatment was only going to last six months. And then to have it extended a year, it derailed my plans because in my head I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to work. Everything's going to be fine. going to go back to what we call normal. And seeing my friends, seeing my peers progress faster than me or be at a stage in their life that I want to be in and I'm not in, it put a lot of pressure on me. And as much as my friends are extremely supportive and they always tell me, it's okay, Hiba, you know, you are fighting for your life. That is something that we are not doing, you know, and we can, we probably can never do. We probably can, can't face it as well as you do. I, I, would, I would try and make myself feel better by thinking of that. But in my head, I'm like, oh, I'm missing out on a lot of things. It was just one thing after another. And every plan that I had just kept getting further and further away from me to this day. 
And on top of that, whenever I go for my scans, I have what a lot of cancer patients call scanxiety. So it's an actual term. Like every time I go for my scans, I text my my cancer support group and I'm like, I'm having scanxiety. And they're like, okay, we, we understand. And it's uh, that feeling before you go for your major scans because that fear of relapse, that fear of cancer recurrence and having to go through everything again is just at the back of your head. And it got to me very, very badly. Every time I would go for my scans, I would just be shaking and... When I smell the soap of the hospital, I feel nauseated, even though I'm not going through treatments, but like I feel nauseated and just I can't sleep at night, you know, and I'm just like, okay, I, I don't know how to navigate this. And then I would have breakdowns and my emotional state was not great. So sometimes in the middle of the night, I would just feel very lonely. And at that time, because 2016, I actually got married and um, I'm divorced now, but at that time, I also thought about, okay, I can't contribute to my marriage. I can't contribute financially, you know, and I'm. my husband had to take care of me. He had to focus a lot of his time and energy on me as well. And so I had guilt, guilt for taking up his time, taking up my family's time, you know, for them to have to shift around their lifestyles for me. That guilt is with me to this very day and it's something that a lot of patients go through. And so all of this just came crashing down on me and I fell into a depressive state where I felt like a burden. And I, it's like being in a deep, dark well and not being able to get out of it. I decided to schedule a session with a psychologist. And the first day that I wanted to go, my anxiety was so bad because fear of the unknown. You know, I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know how therapy is going to go. I'm scared I'm going to be judged by the therapist. Is everything PNC? And when I eventually went, I was lucky to have a therapist who was so good. And throughout that session, I just let everything out. And she validated whatever that I was feeling and going through. And she said, Hiba, you're going through so much. If you look back, you know, you're only, what, 26 at that time, 26, 27, and you're going through cancer. It's not something that everyone goes through at this age. So she said, give yourself some credit. Cut yourself some slack. You're going through a lot. And so to this day, I still go for therapy, but I address different areas of my life now. Like I realized that, okay, it's not just cancer that I was going through. I had some family issues, I had some relationship issues, you know, I had anxiety of going back to work, social life, all of that, you know. And therapy helped me to restructure my thoughts and to give myself that confidence to get back out there, you know, because I think if I didn't have therapy, I wouldn't be sitting here now. And to also allow myself to take that I step back and tell myself, you know what, I've gone through a lot of my life. And to tell myself and to thank myself for taking me through all of this and supporting me, supporting me, basically, and my body supporting me, because my body has been through a lot. And what I didn't realize was that it's not just, you know, my mental health that was affected, it's my physical health as well, you know, and I didn't give my body credit where it was due. And so 
sometimes what I do is I just look at myself in the mirror and I look at the scars that I have because I have a lot of scars. And I'm like, you know what? These scars tell my story. And I want to thank my body, you know, and say thank you to my body for protecting me from whatever that I've gone through and being that vessel for me. And so it it gives me a form of gratitude going through each day. I still have my tough days. I still have... Today is actually a tough day, to be honest, because I'm having um, migraine. But I'm like, you know what? It's okay. I'll just take it one step at a time, you know? And it's okay that I'm having a tough day. And it's okay that I'm telling you that I'm having a tough day because not every day is a sunny, positive day. And that's fine. Acknowledging that is the first step. It was the first step for me to be able to move forward in my day-to-day because we're human beings at the end of the day, you know, and you would see me at my good days and my bad days, and that's me, and I'm not afraid of being me now. And, yeah, I've, I've started to embrace that part of me. I do still have my moments where I suppress and put up a front, but it's not as much as I used to, you know, because I do know there are some days where I'm like, you know what, this needs to take a back seat. I need to do other things first, and that's fine. You know, but I make it a point to express it later on. I talk to someone about it. I talk to my therapist, I talk to my partner, I talk to my siblings, I talk to my sister about all this or my friends about this, you know. And one main thing that I learned from therapy is that every emotion that you feel needs to be expressed, whether verbally, whether by journaling, if you like to run, if you like to paint, it needs to be expressed. If it's not expressed and you suppress it, it will manifest in different ways. So that's why I had my depressive episodes. That's why my physical health also was not great. You know, that's why my mental health was failing me, you know. So I realized that when I express it, especially in a space where I feel like I'm not judged, it helps me feel that much lighter about things. For many people with life-changing medical diagnoses, mental health care is as important as their physical care. Good mental health is not a luxury that you consider only after you sort out your physical health. One doesn't exist without the other. But in our healthcare and health financing system, mental health care is not placed on equal footing with physical care. So Hiba finances her mental health care from her own income. But if I don't have that, then I don't go for therapy. So I've, I haven't gone for therapy for a couple of months, but... When I can, I do go. Uh, There are support groups that I'm in. So I'm part of the Young Cancer Survivors Group under the National Cancer Society. And we do have a WhatsApp group. So at any time that, you know, I need someone, I can just blast out to the group and say, hey, guys, I need to talk to someone. It, you know, it's different from seeing a mental health professional, but it does help to a certain extent. And sometimes there are uh, group therapy sessions that, um, the National Cancer Society does organize with a psychologist on board. But again, because of pandemic, because of COVID, you know, we haven't actually been able to do that. So one-on-one sessions, I find, help me a lot. But I am only able to go for those when I have the funds because it's also not covered by insurance. I think there are companies that are coming up with it, but it's part of, again, the newer plans, I think. If um, you have an older plan, then I think you probably need to upgrade it. After the break, we look at whether Hiba's situation is an isolated case. We'll be speaking to Mandy Thu, Honorary Secretary from NCD Malaysia. 
and the insurance industry will be weighing in on this issue. Marco Dell, CEO of the Life Insurance Association of Malaysia, will be talking about why insurance works the way it does. This is NCD Chronicles, our series that goes behind the diagnosis of non-communicable diseases. Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. There are cancer patients who live 20, 30 years and are healthy, you know, and can go back to work, can contribute to society. And there are people who are extremely healthy and have insurance plans and suddenly fall sick or suddenly, you know, pass on. For me, it's one and the same thing. Like, what's the difference between a cancer patient living on 30 years to be able to work and contribute back and even pay for your insurance long term? And, you know, someone who's perfectly healthy and at the age of 25 gets cancer, you know. So for me, if we can still go out and work, if we can still pay for our insurance, wouldn't that mean insurance companies are still getting their money back? That's my take on this. Because at the end of the day, we can still contribute. We're not a loss to society. Welcome back. I'm T. Xiao Ik on Health and Living Today, another episode of NCD Chronicles. That was Hiba Abdurrahman, a breast cancer survivor who is currently in limbo due to her financial situation. Following a barrage of surgeries and treatments, she's been left exhausted and impaired by the side effects of the therapies and unable to ensure job security for herself. She's been told that she's fortunate to have medical insurance, but there's a catch. Her policy has a limit and she's now excluded from upgrading her plan or purchasing a new one due to her cancer diagnosis. Is her case unique or are there others like her? What we've been hearing is that they would disclose their clinical history and um, the insurance, the intermediary would say, okay, so we get this and then we'll see what we hear back and they never hear back. That's Mandy Du, Honorary Secretary of NCD Malaysia. NCD Malaysia is an alliance of civil societies that seeks to support and empower people living with non-communicable diseases in Malaysia. So for years, we've been hearing from our cancer survivors that they have trouble getting insured, uh, either for cancer and sometimes for other diseases that are not cancer as well. It's not that they don't want to purchase insurance. So for a lot of a lot of our survivors, especially among the young who are actually still employed and can afford insurance, they do want to get some form of coverage. When you shift away, you know, you kind of zoom out from young adults. Let's go to even younger, just as, as an example. So what happens to children with cancer? Say you're diagnosed and treated when you're about five years old, what happens to the rest of your life? So we hear that there are certain insurance companies that do cover other diseases, um, but the main one that they have that they are really concerned about of, you know, recurrence, they they won't get any of that. So there's no protection for that. I'll give you examples of other diseases as well. And this was actually a prominent theme when we 
interviewed and surveyed people living with NCDs um, throughout 2020 and 2021. So in our focus group discussions, uh, there was one particular group with mental health issues. Uh, they had the same issues as well. So either they couldn't get coverage or the insurance doesn't quite cover um, their mental health uh, needs well enough. Like, you know, last year we are aware that the Malaysian Mental Health Association had, you know, called for better coverage and were speaking to the insurance industry to rectify this. And then if you go away from cancer and mental health, the other example that I think anyone can just call up the insurance and try, um, you tell them that you just did your health check recently and then you have a blood glucose level of 6.0. So some intermediaries or some insurance would actually say, we don't, you know, we don't cover that, you know, don't, don't, don't even try applying because once you're considered diabetic, you, you can't get coverage. So um, NCD Malaysia, on this issue in particular, NCD Malaysia has been speaking to people living with NCDs and running town halls in different states. We've spoken to hundreds of people, all with different issues. Um, so it, it is a pretty prominent issue, not just not being able to get coverage, they a lot of them actually don't aren't even aware of what they had purchased as well for those who got. And for official data, the Malaysian National Health Morbidity Survey 2019 also reported that only 22% of the population are covered by personal health insurance. I turn to the Chief Executive Officer of the Life Insurance Association of Malaysia, Mark O'Dell, to find out what exactly are the rights of policyholders and where they stand when it comes to pre-existing diseases. In Malaysia, like most countries, all life and health insurance requires a new applicant to be in reasonably good health. Uh, if one has a serious condition that affects their, their health or their life expectancy, they could be charged additional premiums or decline coverage altogether. You know, this and, and the, the details of that, for instance, what could be covered, what could be excluded, it really all depends on the, the, the risk appetite, risk management philosophy of individual insurers. So it could vary from insurer to insurer. But I think it's important to note that the main objective of every insurance contract is to give financial security and protection to the insured from any future uncertainties. The challenges, therefore, you know, um, come in when somebody already has an impairment, whether it be uh, currently affecting their life, daily lives or not. Uh, they may then have a higher risk of uh, future occurrences that can affect how the insured looks at that risk. Um, so insurance is not meant to cover individuals who are already facing a serious illness or, or a certain death. Are people with pre-existing conditions denied other types of insurance, though, such as life insurance? Yeah, I think it's, it is true. It's a fact that um, both life and health insurance are underwritten. You know, that means that not, not only their health condition, but sometimes their occupation or their avocation may affect their risk. Um, and that could lead to um, an increased premium or even um, a, a declination of coverage. 
So why are people denied insurance when they would actually need it the most? The, you know, the whole principle of insurance in terms of, in terms of life and health insurance is to protect against unforeseen future events, right? So if somebody is already has uh, an impairment or uh, they're sick or they're, they're dying, for instance, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't fall into that, into that definition. And it's not just a legal term. Um, there's also, um, you know, moral hazard here to, at, at play. For instance, uh, if I knew I could get insurance coverage, uh, regardless of my pre-existing conditions, I might wait until I get sick and then I can go apply. Uh, you know, the whole pool of risk sharing works only when there's significant number of people who don't need to utilize that coverage in, in one year, right? Like, like if you look at medical insurance in Malaysia, about 10 to 12% of insureds um, uh, make a claim in any given year. You know, if people with pre-existing conditions, again, it really depends on the extent of their pre-existing conditions, but if they were allowed to, to get the same coverage at the same rate, it would have a serious negative impact on the 9 million people that are already insured in Malaysia. People with NCDs, however, argue that with advanced treatments today, many of them can continue to work, contribute to the economy, and most importantly, pay insurance premiums. First, I want to point out is the, the, the obvious, um, and that is that Malaysia does have universal health care um, and is provided by the public sector, by the government. Um, it has in the past has had a very um, strong uh, reputation internationally for being for serving the public. Um, but in recent years, um, it, it's really suffered from a chronic um, underfunding. You know, so that that leads to the issues that you describe, you know, where people don't feel satisfied with getting access uh, to health care through the public sector, either because of weights or because certain treatments aren't available, certain procedures aren't available. And I think it brings to uh, to the forefront the re- one of the real issues is is that we need to strengthen our public health care sector. The government needs to invest significantly more. If you look at, uh, for instance, uh, YB Kyrie's uh, and the Ministry of Health's white paper uh, that was about to have been issued and tabled in front of Parliament, um, you know, it called for increasing spending from two and a half to five percent of GDP on the government side. You know, that would go a long way to alleviating some of the issues that we see out in the market today. Right now, the issue is seen as a zero-sum game, with a purely utilitarian outcome on the one hand and a moral argument on the other. But while there's a business rationale for the insurance industry, at the end of the day, can you measure a person's life in dollars and cents? You know, I would suggest putting ourselves in the shoes of people living with NCDs. And some NCDs require a bit of um, more urgent care than others. So just imagine you have this illness. um, And a lot of times it's, it's not, you know, it's not because you just went out and had a bad night. And then all of a sudden you have this NCD. Um, A lot of it is, is environmental. Some of it is genetic. But... The good news is uh, there's all this, these drugs and these treatments that are available around you. The bad news is you can't access it. So, I, I mean, outlook-wise, it, it can't feel very nice. So many times 
this is what we've been hearing as we were carrying out this sort of project as well. The response has been, well, there's always public health facilities. And it's certainly true. But sometimes we forget that the reason many Malaysians opt for private health care is not because they can afford it. It's because they can't afford not to. In our research report, NCD and healthcare workers that we did in 2021, we surveyed and interviewed up to 500 healthcare workers, and at least half of them were serving in the public sector in some form. So all of them are committed, dedicated, but were also equally as frustrated because all of them were trying their best. They were, you know, they were doing everything. They were playing different roles that they went um, way beyond what their grade was. And yet they just simply could not cope with the load, especially with COVID and now the aftermath of COVID. So that ultimately affects the quality of care that they can provide to people living with NCDs. I ask Mandy why we should assign the same value to the lives of people with chronic diseases as we do to, quote-unquote, healthy people. Why should we ensure that they have the same access to health care that gives them quality of life when they're already sick? We should care because NCDs are on the rise and they are sort of around us. Look, nearly 70% of premature deaths in Malaysia are caused by NCDs. So let me put it in a, in quite a selfish manner. If it's not you, it's going to be people around you. It's going to be your friends. It's going to be your family, your loved ones. And plus now, you know, with long COVID, um, signs or illnesses are starting to, are popping up and they are quite similar to that of NCDs. So it's, it's not looking good. The other reason is also if we don't, as a community or as a society, unite and ensure that everyone has the ability or the opportunity to enjoy health, well, guess what? We're just going to crowd um, the public health facilities, which in turn worsens the, the quality of care that the others could get. There's no denying that Mark is right. The public health sector needs more investment. But we're not there yet, and we won't be there for a long time to come. Meanwhile, we've heard from Hiba that she lives on a knife edge every day. I asked Mark what someone like Hiba could do. Yeah, you're asking me a very difficult question. Um, I, I, I feel for the person. Um, there really isn't, I mean, short of... Uh, Convincing the, the the government to to look to cover that the treatment that that's in question, um, I, don't, I really don't have any answer. Um, you know, it's um, it is a tough situation. You, you know, I mean, the easy thing to say is unfortunately the treatment have to be covered out of pocket, but not all persons are able to do that, right? In in all situations. Mark provides some assurance that the door is not completely closed to people with pre-existing conditions as exemptions can be considered on a case-by-case basis. 
This happens now where uh, when somebody applies and they have a pre-existing condition, the insurer has the choice of accepting the risk as it is, normal premiums, charging additional premiums because the the risk that uh, uh, of the pre-existing condition may be um, correlated with other things that could develop right in the future, um, or they could exclude that particular condition completely. This is um, already a, a common um, a common occurrence, uh, short of the last resort right, which is declining the risk. Um, it is though up to each insurer to set their own appetite for how to handle those situations. But. Hiba has been knocking on the door of every insurance company and not had success. And what the insurance industry can offer seems paltry against the life and death choice that patients like her are presented with. I'm unable to upgrade, I'm unable to get a new insurance plan. Um, I think even if I really wanted to and even if there was an insurance plan out there that a cancer patient could take, the premium would be extremely high. So I wouldn't be able to afford it. And it defeats the purpose. So I'm still stuck in square one. And I still have that fear in my head of like, okay, if my insurance finishes, what then? You know, and if I if I were to get a relapse, okay, and um, I would need to be on long-term treatment or maintenance treatment, I can only be on it until my insurance finishes. After that, I don't think I'll be able to afford treatments anymore. I have friends who are on maintenance treatment, you know, and some of them are on it lifelong. And some are lucky because their company insurance covers, but some are not so lucky because their insurance is limited or their insurance is maxed out. And then they will have to stop treatments. And they're like, you know, I can't afford this anymore. Because their treatments sometimes in a year cost a million because it's a very rare form of treatments. So... Again, it's having to think about finances versus your life, you know, and I, I really don't want to be put in that situation where I have no money for me to literally live, and that scares me. In next month's episode of NCD Chronicles, we continue hearing from Hiba about how difficult it is for cancer patients to navigate the muddy waters of informed decision-making. And Mandy and Mark offer thoughts on policy reform within the insurance industry and the wider pool of stakeholders in the healthcare system. This has been NCD Chronicles, a series featuring the experiences and challenges of people living with non-communicable diseases. If you missed any part of the show or previous episodes, you can listen to it on bfm.my or on our BFM app. You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.